is really kind of where it's first set up. We must realize that the church first, it came from God. It, it was in the beginning of time, God had the idea of the church. It wasn't some afterthought. Oh, Adam and Eve failed. What am I going to do now? You know, can you imagine God just kind of twiddling his thumbs going, oh no, they messed up. I wasn't planning on this. Um, Jesus, you're up. What am I doing? I don't know. Uh, go down there and die. See if that works. No, no. When God had created, before he created the earth, he had it in his plan. He had the whole idea that he was going to send a son to die, but to institute this church. And this church was going to be his son's bride. God is being a good father. He's preparing a bride for his son from the beginning. How many of us as parents, or at least in our mind's sight, are preparing our children for marriage? How many of you did it already, I'm assuming? We have uh, good friends that, you know, Brian and Susan, Brian led singing last Sunday for us. Their son is just slightly older than JC, and us as parents are already saying, all right, here we go, let's get them together and everything, because we see that would be a good thing. God is doing this for his son. He promised with this church that even the gates of Hades could not stand, as we read in our scripture reading. So Jesus came into the world, and after his death, burial, and resurrection, the church is established. The church begins on the day of Pentecost, the church more so in its formal entering the world sense. It's in the second chapter of Acts that we read about this. Jesus had already in the first chapter, remember, uh, had, had told his apostles that uh, there on the Mount of Olives that you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and throughout the ends of the earth. You will be witnesses. But he also said, go and wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for it. Now we pick up. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And as we discussed earlier, last week they were praying and they were doing things while they were waiting. They were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a, the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, one, in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now that there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native tongue or native language? That's a, can you imagine that scene, first of all? We read in the, in the first chapter of Acts that there was about 140 of them together. And I know there's debate among scholars and among people as of whether this happened to 140 people, this tongues of fire, or if it happened to the 12. Regardless, have you ever tried to put it at just a minimum, 12 people together speaking different languages? What happens? Remember whenever I went overseas and first time I encountered someone that could not speak English, the first thing that I did was slow down and raise my voice. Is that going to help? It made sense at the time. 
raising the voice. I'm wondering if, I don't know, I'm wondering how, how they felt about it. You know, I've watched another, uh, I, I like referring a lot of things to movies, but um, a movie with Brendan Fraser where he gets wishes, he makes a deal with the devil, and he gets wishes granted. And one of them, he becomes a, a, a Spanish drug lord. And as it opens in this scene, he, uh, he starts speaking in Spanish. And he's never spoken in Spanish before. And he goes, I don't know Spanish, but he says it in Spanish. And at that moment, he goes, whoa! And he starts just saying phrases in Spanish that would be fun to him to say. And it's just kind of a funny little scene there. It's just a comedy of a movie. But I wondered if that's kind of how they felt. They said, that, you know, that, whoa! Look what God is doing. This is quite a scene happening. So much that utterly amazed people came to watch. Amazed and perplexed even, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. In the midst of all this excitement, the apostle Peter spoke up, got the crowd's attention. Then he said this. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what it was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on by saying that your young men will dream dreams. You're going on with that. And he quotes stuff from the, from the prophet Joel. And beginning with those words, he preached them about Jesus. In verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to, do, to you by miracles. Wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. I think that's just a powerful, powerful statement that Peter's making. But he doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, replied Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They had no sanctuary, no formal place of worship, no Sunday school, no colleges, no class curriculum. All these things that we might consider make up a church. They didn't even have a sign out on their building. How were people to know how to get there? But this was the first church. This church was heavily armed in prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is how the church started. But we may look at this and, and think of them as super-Christians. A lot of times I do. I look at the early church saying, they just had something different that we don't have now. 
They're in a different circumstance. They were, they were more devout. You know, we're working with people in America. We, we just, we're at a loss. But these were ordinary people. This core group in the early church, these, these 11 men at this point, the, adding Matthias, 12, we, we studied these in class a little bit ago, and the, the whole premise of that class was showing that all 12 of these men were pretty ordinary. Nothing really spectacular about any of them. You know, maybe there was, uh, they were rich fishermen, but in, in that day and age, that wasn't a huge thing. If you were rich, you didn't fish. It's just kind of how it went. So you may have been a successful fisherman, but really, there was no one highly educated, really influential. Now, when the church started a little bit later, you have Saul that comes into it. Now, Saul, as we see, was probably rich and influential. He studied under Gamaliel, which cost money. His family, he, he was well known. He was high up in the Jewish uh, system. His family was known. Barnabas, Barnabas was rich, sold a field, and apparently had enough to live on to support travels of him and Paul, if needed being. So those, those ones came, but remember with Saul, he had to be humbled before God would really use him. So God used these ordinary people to set up His church. Now what was their mission? Church was set up. 3,000 were added. What do they do now? Okay, we're done. Boy, that was a good day. 3,000 one day, let's set record books and have the best growth and just quit. No. Their mission was really stated in Acts 1, but better stated, I think, in, in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is their mission. This is still our mission. Go and baptize, right? It's what we're called to do. That is the Great Commission, and that's what Acts is saying. You will be my witnesses, both in, here in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. In the 13th century, Niccolo Polo, the father of Marco Polo, was visiting the court of the great Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan was the emperor of all China, and he had never to this point seen Europeans before. He was delighted to meet the visitor from Venice and was strongly impressed by the Christian character and the faith that he saw in Niccolo. In fact, he was so impressed that he sent a letter back with Niccolo to Rome urging that a number of Christian educa educators be sent to instruct his people in the teachings of Christ. But this, this letter was sent during, still during the Dark Ages. But I just wanna, want you to picture that real fast. Emperor of all of China sends a letter back wanting to know more about Christians. I think that's pretty crazy, for one, because my view of China up to this point has not been like that. But this was during the Dark Ages. And the church during the Dark Ages was having such a hard time just figuring out who they were and, and working with all of that in, uh, in the Dark Ages, so they didn't really pay much attention to this letter. And in fact, they only sent two people to make that journey. 
The journey got so rough that those two educators turned back and never made it to China. I don't know if it's a direct result of that, but Buddhism is what reigns in China right now, is their religion. What if the church had not forgot about its mission right there and sent those missionaries to China? Would it look any different? Here the emperor of all of China wanted to know more. I think that's kind of sad. They forgot that the mission of the church was to make disciples of all nations. But there's an assurance there with this church. It's not just we're going out alone. At the end of, uh, of that statement in Matthew 28, um, verse 20, at the end of it it says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is an assurance. To the early Christians, this, probably, this assurance probably meant a whole lot more than it does today. See, when the early Christians met for the first even century, in a lot of places, they had to hide. They could not come out in public with their worship. They could not, and if they did, they could die, or at least be persecuted at, at minimum. There's a lot of stuff going on with the church at this point, and it's amazing that it's still growing. And it's growing by leaps and bounds. Whenever I, I went to Rome, I went to go see the catacombs to see where these early Christians actually went to worship. And it's a fascinating place. It's a cemetery, and they're worshiping there. And the singing is incredible how it resonates through the tombs. And I just kind of wonder. And surely I'll be with you. Even to the end of the age, it's got to be an assurance. They got to know, I'm okay. Christ is going to be here. Now, that may have meant more to them, like I said, than it does to us today. But already, I think we are seeing a recognition of God being eradicated from our schools, public assemblies, prayer, Bible reading, nativity scenes. Christmas stories, even, even the very mention of God, are no longer welcome in public places. Now, I know we live in a community that can allow certain things like that, but not all communities can. And you see Christ being pushed out, God being pushed out of what I see founded our country. And you see that being pushed out, and I'm wondering how much longer it is till we are going to be taking assurance because of the persecution on us, that we're going to say, I am so glad Christ promised that He will be with us even to the end of the age. I wonder how long that will be. The church needs to be ready. Because we, we have no assurance from the government, from this world, that things are going to go well. We have no assurance that we will be able to continue to meet. But that's not the main point. That wasn't the point of the early Christians was so that they just have this assurance so that they can feel good. The point was they wanted this assurance so that they could feel free to go out and complete the mission. To go out and, and talk to those that are lost. Because they truly were lost and they believed it. How many of us believe people are lost? 
How many of us act like we believe that? I think that's an issue, is that the more that our church becomes focused on our building and ourselves, the more that we forget about supporting missions and about living out this faith and bringing the lost souls in. And that is a scary thing. Because as good as I illustrated in this second church that I mentioned, as good as their intention was as a soup kitchen, that's a wonderful thing. They forgot the mission. The mission of the church is to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We exist for a lost world. We exist to give ourselves away. We exist to touch a world that doesn't know Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. Not to just come and mark this office, coming together as a worship service in a building that has a name and a, and a sanctuary that is nice and air-conditioned. That is not our purpose. To feel good? Our purpose is to get out among people, among lost people, presenting the gospel of Christ. In the Greek islands near the home of Hippocrates, the founder of modern medicine, you'll find an olive tree that uh, supposedly dates back to the days of uh, his day, I guess, which would make the olive tree about 2,400 years old. Pretty old tree. The trunk of this tree is huge, but it's almost completely hollowed out and virtually dead. You can't really see it in this picture, but most of these limbs that head out are supported by stakes in the ground. It's an old olive tree. And sure, each year, there'll be some sprouts of, uh, of leaves and maybe even a few olives. But what is the purpose of an olive tree? To give olives. To give lots of olives. And when it quits doing that purpose, it's not functioning the way it was supposed to be. I believe this tree is a lot the same way. The only thing this tree is really functioning for anymore is a tourist trap. For people to come and see an old tree that Hippocrates may have sat under while he thought about medicine. It's no longer a tree that it was meant to be. I never want to be a church like that. The church that maybe serves its purpose as another, uh, another idea is, ooh, look at us. We've done such a good work in this world, but we've forgotten our mission. We forgot what we were here for, what God called us to, we forgot our mission. What is the mission of the church? Church should never be like that, a relic of the past. It is the body of Christ, a living, breathing organism that works in this world. It is the family of God, and we are entrusted with a message of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ for those who are everywhere. Not just the ones who might actually come and attend a service and hear the preacher preach but to everyone we cross paths with. Are you truly a light in this world? Everywhere you go, do people know you're a Christian? More than that, do they know what that means? We're called to be a light in this world, salt of the earth, to let Christ's light shine on this dark world. This is the church of Christ what He set up, what God imagined from the beginning. Let's never lose sight of that. And what the apostles started in Acts 2, 
and 3,000 were baptized in one day. Let's continue. If you're here and you're in need of that Savior, then there's no better place for you to be than right here, right now. You, uh, you can come, make that known, and we can baptize you and may welcome you into this kingdom as the 3,000 were in Acts 2. But if you're part of this church, not just this panhandled church of Christ, if you're part of God's church, then you've got a mission to do. And if you've not been holding up your end of that mission and you want to make that known and, and, and publicly confess, we will pray with you and we will help you get kick-started back on the mission of this church. If you have any need, please come forward as we stand and sing.